Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, July 13th, 2010. This is a historical day if you are a confessional Lutheran in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Wow. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. God's Word is supreme. It's true. You can trust it. And we would know practically nothing about God if it were not for his revealed word. And when people are out there making claims about God that contradict what he has revealed about himself in his word, well, those people, they be lying to you. And uh, so what we do here at Fighting for the Faith is we do the, the thorny, politically incorrect comparative work, if you would, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. And where they come up short, well, we point that out and we try to teach sound biblical doctrine fresh well fresh important uh, discernment skills and we try to have a little bit of fun along the way now like i just got done saying today is a it's a big day the reason why it is a big day is that there's major changes afoot within the lutheran church missouri senate now personally i think these are positive changes and uh, the changes that uh, are being made is that um, uh, Reverend Matthew Harrison, who's uh, headed up uh, Lutheran, uh, the Lutheran Church's uh, World Relief Organization or department uh, for, the, for the past few years, has been elected uh, the, uh, the new president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And, uh, and I got to tell you, I was very hopeful that he would get elected, but I was also very, I was very doubtful as to the, whether or not he would be elected. The reason why I was hopeful is because, um, uh, it's very clear to me that, uh, the, pre- the man who's been the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod for the past nine years has come under the sway of uh, church growth gurus and church growth methodologies that are in sync with the seeker-driven movement. And, in fact, I'll be looking at an article today that you know that now is, seems outdated considering the events, uh, but it was just published a day or two ago in uh, the Christian Post talking about the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. 
And uh, as a result of Matthew Harrison's election, he, he's got a very interesting um, challenge ahead of him. And that is is that the Missouri Senate is fractured. It's very deeply divided right now. And uh, where the dividing lines really come down to is uh, is this these church growth methodologies. And um, and Matthew Harrison is the president of uh, all congregations in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, including those that are uh, striving after these uh, seeker-driven ways of doing things. And so my hope and prayer is is that uh, Matthew Harrison will find a way to uh, reunite the LCMS back around our confessions and uh, and you know and which for the Missouri Synod and for Lutherans confessional Lutherans represent what we believe is the correct way of understanding God's word God's word is supreme and we say if your if your uh, interpretation of scripture runs afoul of our confessions you haven't read the bible right so that's probably a good way of looking at it so our, our hopes and our prayers go out to uh, the Reverend Matthew Harrison, and uh, he will be in our prayers, um, considering the fact that he doesn't have a very easy job ahead of him. And it's and not only that, he's got a new structure to boot, which gives him kind of unprecedented powers in the in the synod uh, that uh, no other president has really had with the with the changes that have been adopted in structure and governance within the LCMS. Um, it it'll be interesting to watch, and so uh, President Harrison, President Elect Matthew Harrison, will be in our prayers, just like President Jerry Kishnick has been in our prayers, and we pray ultimately that God's will be done, and that Christ and Him crucified for our sins stays front and center in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So I, I'm I'm excited and I'm happy. And at the same time, you know, I I was watching the um, watching the election live on the internet, watching the video stream, and you got to tell you, Matt Harrison just a class act, and um, he right out, you know, when he got to the podium and began to address the uh, convention and the delegates, I mean, he made it clear that uh, that were that many at that moment were rejoicing and that there were many who were in anguish and pain and that were suffering as a result of the election. And so he was very gracious and very pastoral, and um, I love the fact that he made it clear that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod now has an unbroken record of electing sinners as president and, and that he and he began by asking for forgiveness for those whom he may have hurt and offering his forgiveness forgiveness to those that may have hurt him and so off on the right off on the right note if you would and so interesting to see what happens i will be watching here from pirate christian radio uh <laughs> With, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, you know, keeping an eye out to see what 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 changes will come about as a result of the change in leadership, and uh, hmm, a hopeful day, and um, we will pray that um, these uh, false methodologies that water down our sound biblical doctrine may um, get a thorough investigation, so to speak, and in uh, decisions made accordingly as they pertain to scriptures. At least that's my hope. <sighs> <laughs> I, 
I, I almost don't want to do a program today, but the, the, today's got an interesting program. Do you all remember, It was it a month ago, two months ago? I lose track of time because of the fact that, well, I'm old and, well, I'm getting older and creeping decrepitude continues to creep upon me in a very creepy way. Anyway, um, a, a while ago on Fighting for the Faith, in a previous installment of Fighting for the Faith, somewhere in the foggy past, I had uh, made some uh, made a point about postmodernity that it was really kind of you know it's the the epistemological assumptions and I know that's a big word to be kicking off the program with uh, epistemology has to do with wh- how you know what you know but uh, the basic assumptions regarding knowledge when it comes to uh, those who buy into postmodernity is that well you pretty much the truth trans- truth is not really knowable it's kind of sort of experienced while you're in conversation and community and that kind of thing. And I basically said, this is preposterous. This is silly. This is stupid. And I said, this would be like a scientist claiming that he's post-gravitational. And I said it in jest. I meant it as a reductio ad absurdum. That means I was trying to reduce it to absurdity so that everybody could plainly see what the problems were with the postmodern ways of thinking. And then today happened. Yeah, today Got a link from uh, from a listener who reads the New York Times, and wouldn't you know it? There is a lead story in a New York Times article that I think was published yesterday about a science a scientist who doesn't believe in gravity. I am not kidding. I am not. Ju- we are going to be taking a look, and you'll be hearing portions of this. Article. I mean, I'm afraid to say things on the air now, and the reason I'm afraid to say them is because things that I say jokingly end up becoming reality, and it's, it's kind of frightening and scary. It's not that I have power to do such things. It's just this is the world that we live in, and um, in fact, one of the Marty Python sketches that we do, we had to apologize, you know, because the the Marty Python sketch wasn't satire because you can't do satire when it comes to the church anymore because the church has wandered off into complete silliness. And so if you say something in jest, you say, oh, come on, no pastor would really do something as silly as X, Y, or Z. Well, it's as if those pastors are listening and going, you know, I wonder what I can do this Sunday at church. And somebody sends them a an email says, you know, that Roseboro guy, he had a joking idea, but I think there's something to it. Maybe you could do X, Y, or Z. And wouldn't you know it, like a week, two weeks, three weeks later, you get word of a pastor who's doing X, Y, and Z when just three or four weeks ago you had said X, Y, and Z as like some kind of absurd, ludicrous joke that nobody would ever do. And some enterprising, creative, innovative, uh, seeker-driven CEO, Druggerite pastor out there goes, hey, I think that's a great idea. I'll do that. Yeah, you know, like having a rodeo in church. <sighs> okay, and then today I wrote a um I wrote an article at the and it's published at the letter of mark uh US website. That's letter of mark L E T T E R O V M A R Q U E dot E S letter of mark dot US and the name of the art the, the primary head of heading of the article is God wants unequal economic outcomes. Now I sent this I sent out the link to it uh, so that other people can uh, take a look at it. It got picked up by the Free Republic 
uh, the, the the Freepers. Hey, y'all, I, I did not realize the Freepers were still around. Uh, it got picked up by somebody over at the Free Republic, and as a result of it, it's it's made its way back. Uh, we got quite a bit of traffic coming through the website today. And what was interesting is, is I think a lot of people uh, got upset at what I said, and they misunderstood what I was saying, too. They didn't understand it. So we'll be taking a look at that article that I wrote. And, uh, and then I've got some stuff from the Washington Post. They've been doing a series of articles on whether or not uh, all the religions are really the same. And they've got a uh, an interview with a gentleman last name Apothero, who uh, basically says God is not one, and neither are the religions. We'll take a look at that, and then uh, in you know, kind of time depending. I want to get to I, well, we've got to get to this LCMS article, so we'll get to this today, and uh, we'll go from there. But uh, there's an article that was in the Christian Post that seems kind of antiquated now, and it was just recently published. LCMS urged to defend abandoned truths, and I want to read this because. I think in this article I can point out where the main problem was and what it is that may have um, kind of led to some of the downfall uh, to the downfall of uh, Kishnik's administration in the LCMS. And then for hour number two, our sermon review today. Oh my goodness, this is fantastic stuff. Um, Albert Muller at the recently concluded 2010 or 2010 Ligonier Conference gave. Delivered a lecture entitled "Why Does the Universe Look So Old?" and he, oh my goodness, he absolutely has got all of the liberal theologians and the emergent types all wound up tight, and they're really upset at this because these people uh, think that uh, evolution apparently has some kind of intellectual high ground, and Albert Muller. I, I don't I can't remember the last time I had seen this done in a format like this. He intellectually and biblically defends defends young earth creationism and it is brilliant. It oh man. Have I told you that I really like Albert Muller? I, I this I, if I could figure out how to be more like him, I would even, I would be much better at what I do. Anyway, I, I am really looking forward to you hearing this. I will not be interrupting this very often, uh, but oh my, you've got to hear this lecture and you've got to pass it along to folk. And uh, yeah, why does the universe look so old? It is just a decimating, brilliant, I mean, completely unflinching, unapologetic defense of young earth creationism un i wow cannot wait to play that for you so that's what's uh, going to be on today's edition of fighting for the faith uh so i strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable because keep in mind your listener experience is very important to me here at fighting for the faith and um that means that what i really am you know i i want you to enjoy yourself so uh relax kick up your feet if you want to enjoy an adult beverage we don't have a problem with that uh, keep in mind, Jesus was a drinker, and of course, you know, wine was wine un- until the 19th century, uh, when you know pasteurization came into play. I mean, it, it, listen, the biblical prohibition is not against drinking; it's against drunkenness, abusing the gift. You don't want to do that. It's it's that's muy mal, you know, muy malo malo, bad, bad, bad. So you don't want to do that. But uh, and of course, if you want to listen while exercising, doing, you know, mowing the lawn, anything like that, feel free to do that. And uh, of course, fuzzy bunny slippers, if it's cool in your neck of the woods, wherever your neck of the woods is. But if it's warm, please don't. That's a form of torture. And uh, with that, we're going to uh, dive into the program proper. 
cannot believe I'm reading this. From the New York Times, headline reads, A scientist takes on gravity. I should be playing Fractured Fairy Tales. Unbelievable. Okay, this is by Dennis Overby of the uh, New York Times, published uh, July 12, 2010. <clears throat> the story reads, It's hard to imagine a more fundamental and ubiquitous aspect of life on the Earth than gravity. From the moment you first uh, took a step and fell on your diapered bottom to the slow terminal sagging of flesh and dreams... I have no idea what he's talking about there. Um, he says, but if it's all an illusion, it, it, but what if it's all an illusion, a sort of cosmic frill or a side effect of something else on a deeper level of reality? So says Eric Verlindi, uh, 48, a respected string theorist and professor of physics at the University of Amsterdam, whose contention that gravity is indeed an illusion has caused a continuing ruckus among physicists, or at least among those who profess to understand it. Uh, reversing the logic of 300 years of science, he argued in a recent paper titled On the Origin of Gravity and the Laws of Newton, that gravity is a consequence of the venerable laws of thermodynamics which describe the behavior of heat and gases. Quote, For me, gravity doesn't exist. <laughs> 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 really, it doesn't exist, uh, Doctor Verindi. Uh, just uh, Ver Verlindi, I just got a question for you. Um, there's a photograph of you in this New York Times article, and wouldn't you know it, you're not floating. N no, you're standing on the ground. How is that happening? <clears throat> For me, gravity doesn't exist, said Dr. Verlindi, who was recently in the United States to explain himself. Did he float over from Amsterdam? Did he fly here all by himself? Not that he can't fall down, but Dr. Verlindi is among a number of physicists who say that science has been looking at gravity the wrong way and that there is something more basic from which gravity emerges the way stock markets emerge from the collective behavior of individual investors or that elasticity emerges from the mechanics of atoms. Looking at gravity from this angle, they say, could shed light on some of the vexing cosmic issues of the day like dark energy, a kind of anti-gravity that seems to be speeding up the expanse, expansion of the universe or dark matter that is supposedly needed to hold galaxies together. Dr. Verlindi's argument turns on something you could call the bad hair day theory of gravity. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> let me let me read. It goes something like this. Your hair frizzles in the heat and humidity because there are more ways for your hair to be curled than to be straight, and nature likes options. So it takes a force to pull hair straight and eliminate nature's options. Forget curved space or spooky attraction to a, at a distance described by Isaac Newton's equations well enough to let us navigate the rings of Saturn. The force we call gravity is simply a byproduct of nature's propensity to maximize disorder. Huh? This sound this guy sounds like he's trying to be postmodern. Maybe he's an emergent scientist. He's an emergent physicist. You know, gravity doesn't really exist. It's just nature's way of maximizing disorder. You know, it's like a bad hair day. And I'm sitting here going no, I'm not. I'm not getting anything. None of this is computing. None of this is registering. I mean, here's the deal. I have in my hand a trinket from my desk. 
I hold the trinket above my desk. I let go of said trinket, and it falls. Yeah, and by the way, I'm not floating either. Um, yeah, my my um my posterior is firmly planted in my chair here in the studio, and uh, no chance that I'm going to be floating away anytime soon. So anyway, I, the only reason I bring that to your attention is because, well, a few weeks ago I talked about post-gravitational scientists, and I was joking. Now apparently, um, there are there is truly a such thing as a postmodern post-gravitational scientist, and they don't believe in gravity. It's just an illusion. There you have it. Yeah. Tell that to the kids, by the way, who are responsible over there at uh, in Pasadena, the ones who program the uh, the satellites that you know fire from Earth to Mars and to other planets. Tell them that they're all the gravitational equations are wrong. Anyway, um, <clears throat> moving along here to an article I've written. It's you can read it by the way at letterofmark.us. It's L E T T E R. O-V-M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S. That's letter of Mark dot U-S. The name of the article is God Wants Unequal Economic Outcomes, Challenging the Assumptions of the One-Size-Fits-All Poverty Victim Narratives. Yeah, I spend a lot of time reading emergent authors and um, social justice guys, and basically one of the things I've noticed about the new liberalism is is that it's basically rife with... um, uh, liberation theology, Marxist uh, political theory, and uh, and economic ideas, and um, one of the things that I find interesting is is that as I read these different blogs and books and things by emergent and these new liberals, these new progressive liberals, is that uh, when it comes to the issue of poverty, they sure do have a one size fits all approach. By the way, by the um. Side note here, I did hear back from uh, Jim Wallace's camp, and unfortunately he's not available to do an interview with me during the summer. However, he has he's open to potentially coming on the program sometime in the fall, and I will be getting a preview copy of his forthcoming book and reviewing it in the hopes of uh, landing an interview with Jim Wallace. Just wanted to let you know that, <laughs> you know, because Jim Wallace kind of comes up in these social justice discussions. Anyway, one of the things I've noticed when I read these um, new progressive uh, postmodern emergent liberal types is that they they do ha- you know have their own version of the social gospel and whenever they talk about the poor, it always seems to be the poor uh, there's a victim narrative here that the the reason why there's poverty is because the p- there's people who are poor and they're oppressed by unjust economic systems. Right. Yeah, okay. And so I just like to, you know, in a postmodern deconstructionist kind of way, poke some holes at some of those assumptions and see if um, if that stuff holds up under scrutiny. Hence the uh, article that I've written. So here is this article that I've written. God wants unequal economic outcomes, challenging the assumptions of the one-size-fits-all poverty victim narratives. Now, if you listen to the social justice religious left, then you might easily be misled into believing poverty has only one cause, and that cause is free market capitalism. In the propaganda narratives spewed by the left, the poor are always cast as the helpless victims of an evil and unfair economic system that is exploiting them. This one-size-fits-all approach to poverty and its causes is not only naive, it's, it's outright deceitful. 
what are the causes of poverty? Now, there are many causes of there are many causes of poverty, and it's beyond the scope of this article to provide an extensive look at all of the causes of poverty. Instead, this article will challenge the assumptions of the one size fits all poverty victim narratives offered by the social justice left. Yes, it is true there are well-documented instances of greedy and unscrupulous business owners and CEOs and corporate management teams who, in an effort to maximize corporate profits, have resorted to enslaving people, including women and children. It's important to note that when examples of this type of exploitation surface, that it does not reflect the inherent nature of free market capitalism, but instead demonstrates the bad character and criminal activity of those who've made the decisions to enslave and exploit. Saying that free market capitalism is to blame for these instances of exploitation, it, well, it's like blaming constitutional liberty when there is an increase in the crime rate in any particular city in the United States and then offering martial law as the solution. Fact is, poverty has many, many causes, two of which are worth noting. The first is evil totalitarian governments, and another is laziness. Now, just like some heads of corporations break the law and enslave and exploit, heads of state also rig their own country's systems so that they, so that they and their cronies can steal the wealth and resources of their own nation at the expense of those whom they should be serving. The examples of this type of governmental abuse throughout the ages of human history are too numerous to count. One could argue that the temptation to corruption of governmental power is so strong that good rulers are the exception in human history rather than the norm. This is precisely why the founders of the United States framed the Constitution the way that they did. The goal, in fact, if you, you can read this in the Federalist Papers, the goal was to distribute and disperse power across multiple branches of government in order to keep it from being centralized. In, so that the government would serve the people rather than enslave them. When a bad government enslaves its people, especially the way Marxist governments do, scarcity and mass poverty become the norm. Now, in light of this fact, those who are truly concerned for the world's poor would do well to focus their efforts on bringing freedom and a true free market to those countries where corrupt governments have enslaved its citizens. In the case where corrupt corporate managers are doing the exploiting, their crimes need to be uncovered and those responsible need to be brought to justice. Now, the other cause of poverty that is worth noting is laziness. Yes, that's right. There are some people who are poor and it is their own fault. They are not victims and they are not being exploited. Instead, they are poor because they just won't work. These are those who feel entitled to sit on their laurels and mooch off of other people. Those in the religious left rarely, if ever, talk about such people because it does, doesn't fit their victim narratives. Yet, the Bible has plenty to say about them. Here are just a few examples. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 6, verses 9 through 11. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, 
A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will be upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Proverbs 10.4 A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12.24 The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be forced will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 10.5 He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Or Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according to the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we commend and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Well, to put it bluntly, those who can work but refuse to do so are disobeying God, and their poverty is the just wage for their laziness. Notice also that the Bible doesn't consider it inherently unjust that there are unequal economic results. Diligent and hard-working folk have more money, more property, and more resources than the slothful. And in God's economy, that is exactly how it should be. If it is always unjust that some people have more than others, as the social justice neo-Marxist theologians would have you believe, then God would never have said, quote, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Or, quote, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. In fact, God's word knows nothing of the so-called human right of economically equal results. In this fallen creation, God's economy requires that we eat bread by the sweat of our brows. And those who refuse to work and do not have a divine, uh, those who refuse to work uh, do not have a divine entitlement to take from those who work diligently and have taken the time to learn the skills necessary to increase their value in the free market. Maybe this is why Benjamin Franklin noted, quote, I think the best way of doing good to the poor is not making them easy in poverty, but leading or driving them out of it. I observed that the more public provisions were made for the poor, the less they provided for themselves and, of course, became poorer. And, on the contrary, the less was done for them, the more they did for themselves and became richer. Now, poverty is a complex issue with many causes. Helping the poor and saving out a portion of our resources in order to assist them is the epitome of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. That being the case, it is important that we have a realistic understanding of poverty and its complex causes, and that our efforts are spent working to free those who are enslaved by corrupt governments 
and corrupt corporations, as well as offering financial assistance and relief to those who are willing to work but are genuinely unable, and also giving a swift kick in the butt to those who are lazy and selfishly refuse to work but instead feel entitled to live off of the hard work of others. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh. sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian jerks. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive 
and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? We're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of... Giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. Warning, not all those in poverty are victimized or oppressed. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can support us and partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. <clears throat> okay, 
moving along here, I gotta check my notes. Which story do I want? Do I have time for? You know, I want to talk about the LCMS story, and this is not, you know, some kind of major dig or anything like that. But I, I want to point something out to you, as I've been thinking about, you know, and not for very long too, that the fact that uh, that the LCMS has a brand new president. Uh, the one thing I'm I'm kind of relieved about is the fact that, well, I don't have to deal with the anxiety of political doublespeak coming from Matt Harrison. Uh, he, with Matt Harrison, he is what he is. When you've met the man, you know them. You understand what the man is and who, what he's all about. With Kieschnick, though, he seemed more of a political animal to me, and uh, some of the stuff that came out of his mouth <clears throat> reminded me much of a Clintonian or Rick Warren-esque kind of doublespeak. And I think this may be this may have been a contributing factor as to why he was not reelected. And uh, let me read this article. This was from yesterday, uh, the July 12th edition of the Christian Post, which is uh, available at christianpost.com. The headline re- reads LCMS urged to defend abandoned biblical truths. Now this sounds all fine and dandy. Let me read. This is by Lillian Kwan, a Christian Post reporter. The head of the second largest Lutheran body in the country greeted delegates over the weekend with a note of affirmation that they are the frontline defenders of biblical truths. While lamenting the liberal uh, direction of that, of that, that their sister body, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Episcopal Church, have taken in recent years, Gerald Kieschnick, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, thanked his denomination for unique, uniquely preserving the gospel. Quote, the unique contribution of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod to Christianity in the world is that we have always stood steadfast without compromise on the truth of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word, he said Sunday at the 64th regular convention in Houston. Now, right off the bat, I'm sitting there going, really? Okay, because... It's uh, people within the Kieschnick administration who were responsible for canceling issues, etc., which was probably the clearest radio voice for confessional Lutheranism at the time. It still is the, the clearest, <clears throat> and other programs here at Pirate Christian Radio all came about as a result of bringing that, of uh, bringing issues, etc., back on you know back onto the air. And uh, and basically surrounding them with good Lutheran content, <clears throat> but um, the idea here is is that you know I when you look at his actions, it didn't always match up with his words. I mean, here you talk about you know we've taken the steadfast, uncompromising view. Yet if you listen to the lineup on the AM station over at KFUO, some of the stuff that they say and do is just it's getting silly and goofy like the sermons we review here at Fighting for the Faith. Just, you know, something, an observation that I've noted. <clears throat> Not that I pay too much attention to such things, but I am in the radio business. <clears throat> during his uh, during its eight-day uh, convention this week, the LCMS will be considering resolutions in response to the ELCA's decision last summer to allow un- non-celibate gays and lesbians on the clergy roster, one of the resolution uh, resolution commends the theological implica- implications of the 2009 ELCA decisions a document for uh, study and reference. While the two Lutheran bodies had partnered together in works related to mercy and relief, the ELCA's action, or what Kieschnick described as 
a desertion of biblical truth now threatens that cooperative relationship, the document states. The document does not call the LCMS to immediately cut ties with the ELCA, but it expresses hope that their theological position will be respected and that they can avoid any policies or decisions which would require us to cease our support and involvement in their activities. Now, the ELCA, in case you've been hiding under a rock for the past few years, um, is you know is basically the uh, our, a heretical sect of Lutheranism, and how they ended up where they've ended up. I mean, totally abandoning uh, sound biblical doctrine and uh, ordaining unrepentant practicing homosexuals. It, it began. You got to understand the ELCA bought into liberalism, and liberalism always has as its starting point questioning God's word and the truths that need to be proclaimed and putting the culture in the driver's seat in the church, okay? Every single time a denomination has gone liberal, it's been a powerful cocktail of letting the culture decide and dictate what's in the church combined with uh, biblical higher criticism and other things, okay? Keep this in mind, right, as I read the rest of this um, article, Further frank and serious discussions on the matter are also needed, it adds. Uh, in his report, Sunday Kieschnick indicated that the ELC has descended into the swamps of compromise, diluted Christian doctrine, and edited God's word to, God's word to suit the whims of the day. <clears throat> Isn't some of this what the Ablaze movement has been doing and the Ablaze churches have been engaging in? We've reviewed sermons from so-called LCMS Ablaze churches. Here, and they have, well, sadly fit the same pattern that we've seen in seeker-driven churches in the sermons that we review here at Fighting for the Faith. <clears throat> Let me continue. And just as the LCMS defended the purity of the gospel in the early 70s, they, can, uh, they, they are continuing that fight today, he noted. Since the ELCA's controversial action, dozens of churches have taken votes to sever ties with the denomination, the largest Lutheran body in the country, and uh, several have sought support from the LCMS, according to Kieschnick. The breakaway churches are going uh, to the smaller Lutheran body for theological support, training, mission assistance, financial assistance, and conservative confessional companionship, he said. Kieschnick reaffirmed the LCMS's stance that homosexual behavior is contrary to the will of God and therefore intrinsically sinful, and that marriage is a divine institution which binds one man and one woman together in one flesh union, not to be broken until death parts them. He further repeated theological and confessions uh, that the denomination holds to including belief in the triune God and that the pastoral office is limited to men. Quote, this is what we believe, teach, and confess, he underscored. Anyone who alleges otherwise is simply misinformed or misled. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod for 163 years has been a solid, evangelical, faithful, biblical, confessional Christian church, and I pray to God it always will be. He added that preserving biblical truth this is where the kid this is the rub okay everything that you've heard so far i mean you can sit there and you can go okay uh, well yeah he's right yes yes amen then there's this he added that preserving biblical truth does not make the church static or incapable of adapting to changing times 
Though the LCMS has struggled with shrinking membership over the last 40 years, it's about proclaiming a changeless Christ to a changing world, he stressed. Who does this sound like? You know, uh, sounds exactly like Rick Warren. Hang on, I'm going to grab a book off of my shelf. Hold on one second. Here it is. The book I grabbed is uh, was written and published in 1995. The name of the book is The Purpose Driven Church, Growth Without Compromising Your Message and Mission. Yeah. See, this little line here from Jerry Kieschnick from Sunday that it's about proclaiming a changeless Christ to a changing world. I mean, all the evidence shows that over the past few years, Dr. Kieschnick has been heavily influenced by church growth gurus who are in lockstep with Leadership Network, the Purpose Driven Church Network, the Willow Creek Association. And we've heard this line before from guys like Rick Warren when when this whole purpose-driven thing was hitting the church like a brush fire in, in Santa Ana, California on a hot uh, winter Santa, uh, Santa Ana wind kind of day. Okay? We were told, and we've been told by all these church gurus, oh, no, 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 you're not compromising the message. The message is timeless. The message stays the same. You're just changing your methods. In a changing world, you're being relevant to, to you get all that other stuff. <clears throat> uh, those of you who've listened to Fighting for the Faith for any amount of time know that uh, I spend quite a bit of time reviewing sermons from seeker-driven and purpose-driven churches, some of the world premier seeker-driven and purpose-driven churches. And the one thing I can say with absolute unflinching certainty is despite all the assurances to the contrary, these churches have absolutely compromised the biblical and Christian gospel, and they've, they have jeopardized and biffed and twisted the Christian message. I think this is one of the reasons why, when this is all done and the analysis is finished and 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 the dust has settled and the history books begin to be getting written on this, there will be a section in the history books in the LCMS regarding Jerry Kieschnick and his flirting with the same failed methods as Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, Peter Drucker, Bob Buford, and all of those church growth gurus and how that ultimately helped and was a contributing factor to why he wasn't reelected in 2010. 
Membership at the LCMS is currently 2.4 million. Kishnick acknowledged that the denomination is struggling with its fair share of problems, including disharmony over diversity. In terms of worship, style, role of laity and service of women, a lack of civility and accountability, uh-huh, poor communication, mm-hmm, and a loss of its children and grandchildren from LCMS churches. He urged, he urged the body to face up to this reality in order to fix the problems and move forward to reach the lost. <clears throat> Quote, time is short and hell is hot, he noted. I pray that we will recommit to proclaiming one message of Christ and him alone. I think those were very prophetic words, Dr. Kishnick, and I think that God heard your prayers. I think that God heard your prayers when you prayed that we recommit to proclaiming one message of Christ and him alone. I'm going to go ahead and take my second break early. When we come back, we will be hearing from Dr. Albert Muller. I know this is just absolutely <laughs> kind of crazy, but we're going to be hearing from Dr. Albert Muller, who is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's not a Lutheran, but man, is this a great lecture. And the lecture is on why does the universe look so old? It is a blistering, decimating attack against evolutionary ideas and the mixing of evolutionary concepts with biblical doctrine and it is a bold and audacious and outrageously great in your face proclamation of get this young earth creationism you don't want to miss it we'll be right back now if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on facebook it's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or you can follow me on twitter my name there pirate christian we'll be right back Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I had enough. Of the sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Hello, this is Reverend Matt Slick, president and founder of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I wanted to let you know about our online schools of theology, apologetics, and critical thinking. Each school has been developed out of my more than 30 years of experience as a teacher, author, and defender of the Christian faith. With these schools, you can learn what you need to know about the Christian faith, how to defend it, and how to promote the gospel. The three schools are very easy to use, and you can go through them at your own pace. They are designed with short, succinct lessons that include topics such as Christian doctrine, the Bible, evangelism, the cults, atheism, evolution, Islam, logic, and critical thinking. Each lesson is followed by questions that you answer in a self-paced fashion. So, in order to grow in your Christian faith, please visit CARM.org, that's C-A-R-M dot O-R-G, and click on the link for the online schools at the top of the page. And enter the code PIRATE to receive a 10% discount. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Oh, man, this is a barn burner. I am so excited for you to hear this one. But I got to do this right. I got to intro it in the traditional fighting for the faith way. All right, sermon review music, please, maestro. And the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Now, today's sermon is not a sermon. It's a lecture delivered by Dr. Albert Moeller. And, man, I I love this guy. (laughs) Oh, man. This was recently presented at the 2010 Ligonier Conference. And the name of the lecture is, Why Does the Universe Look So Old? And even before we begin, because I previewed this thing, oh my goodness, I'm giving it a standing ovation to begin with. Hang on. Yeah, that's right. That's Roseboro giving a standing O to Albert Moeller. Why? Because he has the intellectual fortitude and guts to defend young earth creationism. Oh, man, this is a shot. This lecture is a shot across the bow of those who are capitulating to evolutionary theory and Darwinian evolution and and this idea that the universe is a bazillion years old. Oh, man, 
wait till you hear this. I, I will not interrupt this it maybe maybe once or twice, but that's about it. Albert Moeller doesn't need any help from me. This thing is brilliant. This is one worth passing on to your friends and to your relatives. There is no reason whatsoever why we as Christians need to basically bargain with or capitulate to or find a way to get along with evolutionary theory. And Muller here, oh, this is so good. Let me kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Albert Muller on, on why does the universe look so old? Here we go. The question about the age of the earth for 830 on a Saturday morning. This is the Green Beret convention, and uh, it is extremely assuring to see this room filled at this hour on a Saturday morning with people to come to seek biblical truth on any number of questions. As this conference has so helpfully drawn us and drawn our attention to some of the most pressing questions that Christians face, the, the tough questions that Christians face. It is an honor to be here, as always, with my dear friend, Dr. R.C. Sproul, and with so many others, all of these speakers and, and dear colleagues in the great fight of the faith. And in coming to understand the great truths of the Christian faith and how these might most helpfully be applied in the confrontation with the, the questions of contemporary life. For so many years, Ligonier Ministries and R.C. Sproul have demonstrated that you really can teach the deep things of the Christian faith to a church and to Christians in the late 20th and 21st centuries. We are indebted for a model of such faithful teaching. And it is on the basis of that, it is driven by years and years of ministry. It is living in the surplus of all of that teaching that we're able to be here today in this conference to ask these questions. And our absolute confidence is that there is no question Christians need fear. There are only questions we need to learn how to answer. This is a tough one. My assignment, why does the universe look so old? Well, we have limited options. Number one, maybe the universe looks so old because it is so old. Option number two, maybe the universe looks very old, but it is not actually so old as it looks. There could be perhaps a third option or any number of, of derivatives in which you simply say, we can't answer the question. Or, or there may be some who would say the question isn't important. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the question is extremely important and that it is one for which we must be ready to give an answer. I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We dare not seek to answer this question without first looking to the Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. 
and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were over the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening. And there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work 
that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. What we have here in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 is a sequential pattern of creation, a straightforward plan. A direct reading of the text would indicate to us seven 24-hour days, six 24-hour days of creative activity and a final day of divine rest. This was the untroubled consensus of the Christian church until early in the 19th century. It was not absolutely unanimous. It was not always without controversy, but it was the overwhelming untroubled consensus of the church until the dawn of the 19th century. Four great challenges to the traditional reading of Genesis have emerged in the last 200 years or so. The first of these is the discovery of the geological record. Early in the 19th century, building upon discoveries made in the late 18th century, there became an awareness of fossils that appeared to be telling a story. Especially in that period of time, in the the wake of the Enlightenment, when expeditions were going to far corners of the earth for the first time, in the discovery of so many things that were new and unknown, The knowledge of a fossil record and various strata of fossil deposits became known. And that knowledge began to prey upon the minds of those who had been raised within a Christian culture and had been taught Christian truth and who had assumed that Genesis is the great historical account of how the world came to be. The second great challenge was the emergence of Darwin's theory of evolution. Coming at the midpoint of the 19th century, we need to be reminded that Darwin was not the first evolutionist. We need to be reminded that Darwin did not embark upon the beagle having no preconceptions of what exactly he was looking for or having no theory of how life emerged in all of its diversity, fecundity, and specialization. Darwin left on his expedition to prove the theory of evolution, a theory that based upon the fossil record and other inferences had already begun to take the hold of some in Western civilization. The dawn of the theory of evolution presents a direct challenge to the traditional interpretation of Genesis, and as we shall see, to much more. The third great challenge in terms of The traditional understanding of Genesis came with the the discovery of ancient Near Eastern parallels to the Genesis account. Once these ancient parallels became known, the Enuma Elish, the Epic of Gilgamesh, scholars began to look at these documents and then to look at Genesis and begin to see Genesis as just one more of these ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. The fourth great challenge to the traditional interpretation of Genesis was the development of higher criticism, and in particular, the development of the documentary hypothesis. A hypothesis and an approach to the Old Testament, in particular to the Pentateuch, that sought to establish different strata, different sources, and to take the text apart, treating it as a merely human document, and seeking to look at dependence and borrowings and polemics and literary styles. These four movements together 
were devastating in terms of the larger Western consciousness to the traditional interpretation of Genesis. When you add together fossils, Darwin, ancient Near Eastern parallels, and the documentary hypothesis, you have a brew for a massive shift in understanding. Now, when we ask the question, why does the universe look so old, we're asking and over against these challenges. And to each of those, we will return. But first, we need to define some terms. If we're talking about why the universe looks so old, we need to ask the question, just how old, supposedly, does the universe look? It's fascinating when you look at the historical development of this question that the expanse of time has grown exponentially once persons began to ask this question and to detach it from the biblical reality. Just on the basis of scientific or phenomenological observation, the age of the earth has been getting older and older and older. The scientific consensus right now is that earth, planet earth, and this particular solar system is approximately 4.5 billion years old. That's billion with a B. The age of the universe is now established by scientific consensus to be about 13.5 billion years old. The distinction between the age of the universe and the age of the earth having to do with the age of the universe being tracked back to the hypothetical emergence of the Big Bang and with uh, radiological data and with uh, physical extrapolation about the expansion of the universe, the assumption is that it would have taken 13.5 billion years to have created this universe. Looking at the uh, radiometric data that is found here on the planet and in particular that has shifted amongst uh, scientists now more towards the debris from meteorites rather than anything that was uh, considered to have emerged from within the earth itself the estimation is that it's, it's 4.5 billion years old now just to place ourselves in the historical and intellectual context of our question here's what we're really looking at the inference and consensus of the church through all of these centuries that the earth and the universe, the cosmos as a whole, is very young, talking about a limitation of only several thousand years by the time you you take the book of Genesis and especially its first 11 chapters and you look at the creation account and you look at the genealogies, you add it all together, you're looking at no more than several thousand years. We're talking about a disagreement that is not slight. The difference between several thousand years and 13.5 billion years is no small matter. And I would argue it comes with huge theological consequences. One of the assumptions you need to have in mind in terms of the assumption about the age of the earth, that the scientific assumption comes down to this. Uniformitarianism. The assumption that is crucial to establishing the age of the earth is based upon an intellectual assumption made early in the 19th century by Charles Lyell and others called uniformitarianism which assumes that the way we observe physical processes now is a constant guide to how physical processes always have operated. Thus, a steady-state understanding of physical processes is what we're talking about as the secular scientific assumption. 
we gauge these things and measure these extrapolated billions of years based upon the assumption, the scientists will tell us, that things as they are now are as they have always been in terms of physical processes. Now, with that as intellectual background, what's the urgency of the question? Why are we here at this meeting asking the question, why does the universe look so old? Is this an urgent question? Is it one that, that, that calls us to account? The answer to that has to be yes. And there are some recent developments that indicate again and again and anew why it is so. The controversy concerning Professor Bruce Waltke, who even in recent months became a focus of controversy after making a video in which he argued that unless evangelical Christians come to terms in accepting the theory of evolution, we will be reduced to the status of a theological and intellectual cult. The urgency of this question and the demand for an answer comes over against what is pressed upon us with the definition of the assured results of modern science. Constantly we are addressed with the fact that science has now presented us with a knowledge, with an assured, confident knowledge to which we must give an answer. William Dimsky, in a recent book, borrowing from Cambridge philosopher Simon Blackburn, speaks of our current mental environment, defining it this way. He says, our mental environment is the surrounding climate of ideas by which we make sense of the world. As Professor Dimsky makes clear in his argument, the current mental environment in which we move and, and live and speak and communicate and preach and bear witness to the gospel is a mental environment that is shaped by the intellectual assumption that the world is very old. To speak in confrontation to that current mental environment, it is implied, comes at a significant cost. The old earth, it is suggested, and old being 4.5 billion years old for the solar system and 13.5 billion years for the universe is simply part of that mental environment. An even greater urgency is pressed upon us by the emergence of the new atheism. Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, three of these four horsemen of the new atheism are scientists, and two of them have made their reputation in the defense of the most extreme and yet now commonly held forms of evolutionary theory in terms of the scientific academy. Richard Dawkins is the author of the book The Selfish Gene, and it is Richard Dawkins who has suggested that Darwinism is what allowed him to become an intellectually fulfilled atheist. In their new argument, very forcefully put forth, they are arguing that evolution is the final nail in the coffin of theism. And they are making the claim that the the assured findings and conclusions of modern science make not only the book of Genesis, but theism untenable. In his new book, The Greatest Show on Earth, Richard Dawkins goes so far as to suggest 
that deniers of evolutionary theory should be as intellectually scorned and marginalized as Holocaust deniers. Evolution, he says, is a theory only by arcane scientific definition. It is a fact, a fact, he says, no intelligent person can deny. We have the emergence of the evolutionary worldview and its hegemony in the larger intellectual elites. The new atheism comes along with Daniel Dennett in his book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, suggesting that evolution is what he calls the universal acid. I have to tell you, every middle school boy knows exactly what he's talking about. Daniel Dennett talks about when he was in middle school and he imagined a universal acid. This is an acid that would be so powerful that nothing could contain it. You put the acid in the container, it consumes the container. You, you then find that it consumes the entire classroom as it breaks out in the laboratory. And then it consumes the entire school, every middle school boy's dream. And then it continues to consume and to consume and to consume until eventually nothing remains. Daniel Dennett said that science has never discovered an actual acid with that physical property. But he suggests that Darwin's theory of evolution is the intellectual equivalent of a universal acid. It destroys everything in its wake. It completely redefines every understanding of life and its meaning. And I would argue that in that sense he is right. Darwinist evolution is the great destroyer of meaning. Not only the meaning of the book of Genesis, but of almost every dimension of life. The background of this is also panic among the cultural and intellectual elites. In the United States and increasingly in Great Britain and in Europe and beyond, the intellectual elites are absolutely frantic. They're scratching their heads in incredulity. How is it? that after the Darwinist revolution, after the hegemony of evolutionary theory in the sciences, a majority of Americans still reject the theory of evolution. It is driving them to distraction. My favorite illustration of this comes from the year 2003 when Nicholas Kristof wrote an article on the virgin birth of Christ, a column in the New York Times. And he said, as I paraphrase him, I am absolutely frightened to live in a society where there are more people who believe in the historicity of the virgin birth than in the reality of evolution. Well, wake up, columnist Christoph. It's not just in America. Creationism and the rejection of evolution is not losing ground in Britain and in Europe, it is gaining ground. And the intellectual elites on both sides of the Atlantic are in sheer panic. How can these things be? It's not just panic amongst the cultural elites in the secular world, however. It is also panic among the theologians. There is the warning from Professor Waltke that if we do not get with the program, will we be marginalized as a cult? 
There are the warnings from people like Peter Inns at the website BioLogos, a major movement started by Francis Collins, now the director of the National Institutes of Health under President Obama, formerly the head of the Human Genome Project and the author of the book The Language of God, in which he makes his own argument that unless we get with the program, we are going to be intellectually marginalized. And Francis Collins makes the point, made by so many others, that we will actually lose credibility in sharing the gospel of Christ if we do not shed ourselves of the anti-intellectualism which is judged to be ours by the elite if we do not accept the theory of evolution. And it's not just in that circle as well. There are evangelical elites, the faculties of evangelical colleges and universities and seminaries. There are authors such as Carl Gilberson in his book Saving Darwin. And, and then it goes back in terms of the evangelical movement to the emergence in the middle of the last century of the American scientific affiliation. Figures such as Bernard Ram, well-known evangelical theologian who argued that there must be an acceptance of evolutionary theory amongst evangelicals. In light of this, what are our major options? Thinking about the theories of the age of the earth and theories of the interpretation of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, I'll reduce the options to four. The first is the traditional 24-hour calendar day view. Now, this is the most straightforward reading of the text. As we read and heard the text of Genesis 1 through the first three verses of Genesis 2, the most natural understanding of the text would be that what is being presented here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a sequential pattern of 24-hour days. The pattern of evening and morning, the literary structure, all of these things would point in any common sense manner to 24-hour days. These 24-hour days would reveal a sequence, increasing differentiation, eventually presenting in the climactic creation of man as the image-bearer of God. Six days of active creation and one day of divine rest. The second option is what is known as the day-age view. And in this view... What is argued over against the, the data that is coming to us and is claimed to represent a very old earth, what is, what is presented to us is the option that the Hebrew word yom, in this case, actually need not always refer to a 24-hour calendar day, but might actually refer to a much more indefinite and presumably very long period of time. The day-age view, as held by most of its major proponents, would hold that what we have here is indeed a sequence. There is a sequential understanding of, of creation towards greater differentiation, greater specialization, pointing toward the creation of, of humanity as the image bearers of God. But that these days, though sequential, are overlapping and not entirely distinct and are not to be taken as 24-hour chronological days, calendar days, as we know them. The third option is what is most commonly known as the framework theory. The framework theory leaps over the question of the, the length of the day, suggesting that it is only a literary framework, and it also do not suggest that 
it is a non-sequential ordering in the text. It, it is a literary way of telling a story about the providential ordering of creation by God. And thus there is theological content to be derived from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But in particular in Genesis 1, we are not to trouble ourselves with the question about the length of time, nor even about the ordering and sequence of the days, but rather to see that this is God providentially ordering his creation for his glory. The fourth option is to take the first two chapters of Genesis, and actually far beyond the first two chapters into at least the first 11 chapters as being merely literary. Understanding that what we have here is a parallel ancient Near Eastern text, in this case customized for the worship and the teaching of Israel. It is a creation myth, a mythological rendering that marks the beliefs of the ancient Hebrews. Now, what do these have to do with the age of the earth? Well, of all of these options, only the understanding of a 24-hour calendar day creation necessitates a young earth. The rest of them all allow for, if they do not directly imply and assume, a very old earth. As we work backwards in terms of evangelical options, the idea that Genesis is merely literary has to be rejected out of hand as in direct contradiction to our understanding of the Bible as the inerrant and infallible Word of God. That option for an incredible and faithful evangelical Christian must be taken off the table. So then we are left with a framework theory held by some prominent evangelicals, but I would argue one of the least defensible positions when we understand that it is based upon the assumption not only that there may be a very long period of time that is involved and incorporated in Genesis 1 and the sequence of the days, but actually that the sequence does not matter. It simply is not credible, at least to me, that God gave us this text which with such rich detail and sequential development, merely that we would infer from it his providential direction without any specific reference to all of the direct content he has given us within the text. It, it certainly seems by any common sense, natural reading of the text that it is making historical and sequential claims. The day-age view, working backwards, is much more attractive on theological grounds, much more attractive on exegetical grounds. It involves far fewer entanglements and issues. But as we shall see, it involves issues that go beyond even exegesis. The, the first thing we need to note, as has been noted by even more liberal scholars such as James Barr, is that any natural reading of the text would indicate that the author intended us to take 24-hour days, calendar days, as our understanding. I am arguing for the exegetical and theological necessity of affirming 24-hour calendar days.
thank God we have somebody who's willing to stand up for this view. Thank you, Lord. The first issue we note is the issue of the integrity of Scripture. And we must concede that those who hold to a day-age view or its equivalent and who argue for an old earth, insofar as they are our colleagues in the evangelical movement affirming the inerrancy of Scripture, are seeking to do so in a way that does not do violence to the inerrancy of Scripture. But I would simply respond most quickly that there is no such need for strained defense when it comes to a 24-hour understanding of creation. But there are issues far beyond exegetical issues that are at stake here. And as time is, is brief, I want to suggest that what is most lacking in the evangelical movement today is a consideration of the theological cost of holding to an old earth. This entire conversation is either missing or marginalized in the larger evangelical world today. It is my purpose, as I have this opportunity to speak to you about this question today, to suggest to you that the exegetical issues are real. And the exegetical evidence, based upon a Reformation understanding of Scripture and the proper interpretation of Scripture, would lead me to a natural understanding of 24-hour calendar day creation. But I would wish to allow, just as a matter of, of, of conversation and, and consideration, that it might be possible that we could be overreading the text in that regard. It, it could be possible that we're actually coming to this with the presupposition that it must be a 24-hour day and, and, and thus we should hear the warning that comes to us from those who hold to an old age of the universe that we just might be creating an intellectual problem here in late modernity that is not necessary. So I've done my very best to consider the question from that vantage point. And when it comes to the exegetical issues, I will tell you that I think the exegetical defense of a 24-hour calendar day is sufficient. In other words, the exegetical cost, the cost of the integrity and the interpretation of Scripture to rendering the text in any other way is just too high. But I want to suggest to you that the theological cost is actually far higher. Think with me here. As we are looking at the Scripture, we understand it to be, as it claims, the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Every word inspired by the Holy Spirit. We believe that the speaking God speaks to us in this word. This is an inscripturated revelation of the one true and living God. But we also come to understand that this text is telling us a story. And that story, just in a redemptive historical framework, has to be summarized so that we know our accountability to the story and the narrative, the grand narrative of the gospel, can include no fewer movements than these. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We come to understand the grand narrative of Scripture, the redemptive historical narrative that is revealed in the unity of the Old and New Testaments and the consistent presentation of the revelation of God. 
And we come to understand that it begins with creation. It moves quickly to the fall and then to redemption and consummation or new creation. We understand that the Bible presents a doctrine of creation that is more than merely an intellectual account of how the world came to be. It is a purposive account of why the universe was created by a sovereign and holy and omnipotent God as the theater of his own glory for the purpose of demonstrating his knowledge not only as creator but as redeemer. The doctrine of creation is absolutely inseparable from the doctrine of redemption. But it begins there in this story, as is revealed in Scripture. And thus, we come to understand that what Scripture makes clear is that God has revealed how everything that is came to be and why. The second movement is of equal importance, and that is the fall. Every worldview is accountable to answer the question, why are things as they are? What is broken? How did this happen? And the Scripture so quickly takes us to Genesis 3 and to the fall and to human sinfulness and to the headship of Adam. And thus we come to Genesis 3. We come to understand that the world we know is a Genesis 3 world. The creation we observe is a Genesis 3 fallen creation. And we come to understand that if we had merely these first two movements in the redemptive historical narrative of Scripture, we would be lost and forever under the righteous judgment and under the wrath of God. But thanks be to God. These then take us, as Scripture takes us, to redemption. And there we come to understand that God, before the, the universe was created, had purpose to redeem a people through the blood of his Son. And he does this. And we come to understand how the Scripture presents this in terms of the person and work of Christ, the meaning of his atonement, and the richness of the gospel. But the grand narrative of Scripture does not leave us merely there. It, it points towards consummation, final judgment, new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. It points towards the reign of God demonstrated at the end of history and the conclusion of this age. It points us to a time when every eye is dry and every tear is wiped away, to a final judgment, to a dual destiny of heaven and hell. It points us to a new creation, to a new heaven and a new earth that is not merely the reestablishment of Eden, but something far greater. For in the new creation, God is known not only as creator, but as creator and redeemer. His glory being infinitely greater by our beholding, by the fact that we know him now as those who have been bought with a price, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's important for us to remember our accountability to that narrative. Because this raises some central questions, two in particular. The first is the historicity of Adam. In Romans 5.12, we read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all men because man sinned. Paul bases his understanding of human sinfulness and of Adam's headship over the human race on a historical Adam, an historical fall. Right on. <laughs> Adam may be, indeed I believe really is, the most pressing question. The historicity of Adam and Eve and the historicity of the fall. An old earth understanding has serious complications because the old earth is not merely understood to be old. The inference that it is old is based upon certain evidences that also tell a story. The fossils are telling a story. And the story they are telling is of millions and indeed billions of years of creation before the arrival of Adam. But the scientific consensus about the meaning of that evidence goes far beyond that to suggesting that, that there were hominids and pre-hominids and, and there were hundreds of thousands of hominids and there were, there were, well, let's put it this way. It is possible to hold under an old age understanding to an historical Adam, to the special creation of humanity, but it requires an arbitrary intervention of God into a, a, a very long process of billions of years in which at some point God acts unilaterally to create Adam and Eve, Eve out of Adam. It comes with very serious intellectual entanglements. It is actually difficult, as is reflected by the fact that the contemporary conversation in terms of the age of the earth is requiring a redefinition of who Adam was. Interestingly, as I've looked at this question, I've been surprised, quite frankly, to see how many older evangelicals had already seen this and come to come terms with it. In his commentary in the book of Romans, John Stott actually suggests that Adam was an existing hominid that God adopted in a special way. And out of Homo sapiens, God implanted his image, made Adam particularly in his image by ensouling him and creating in Adam not only Homo sapiens, but Homo divinus. Let's just imagine for a moment what that would theologically require. It requires that there were homo sapiens who were not the image bearers of God. It, it requires a, an adoptionistic understanding of Adam rather than special creation of Adam. Dennis Alexander in his new book, creation or evolution, do we have to choose? A fellow at Cambridge University suggests, and I quote here, that God in his grace chose a couple of Neolithic farmers to whom he chose to reveal himself in a special way, calling them into fellowship with himself so that they might know him as a personal God. Now, is that in any way a possible, legitimate, exegetical reading of Genesis that God chose a couple of Neolithic farmers? What haunts me about that book is not just the contents of the book, but 
what is on its front cover, a blurb from J.I. Packer who says, surely the best informed, clearest, and most judicious treatment of the question and title that you can find anywhere today. Do we not take into account what this means? Well, many others are taking it into account. For instance, at the BioLogos website, now becoming the locus classicus for this discussion, you find the argument made by Peter Enns very recently, just even in recent weeks, in a series of articles entitled Paul's Adam. I quote here, For Paul, Adam and Eve were the parents of the human race. This is possible, but not satisfying for those familiar with either the scientific or archaeological data. He goes on to suggest that we must abandon Paul's Adam and suggest that Paul, insofar as he refers to Adam in Romans chapter 5, is limited by his dependence on primitive understandings. Carl Gilbertson, Eastern Nazarene University, says this, clearly the historicity of Adam and Eve and their fall from grace are hard to reconcile with biblical history. He says this, one could believe, for example, that at some point, this dismisses the kind of Stott theory, just, to, just so you hear. What, what I want you to understand from this is that holding to this actually doesn't even get you any advantage. In, in other words, if you're trying to, to make peace with the modern secular mind and you're trying to meet the intellectual elites halfway, guess what? They won't meet you halfway. Listen to this. One could believe, for example, that at some point in evolutionary history, God chose two people from a group of evolving humans, gave them his image, and put them in Eden, which they promptly corrupted by sinning. But this solution is unsatisfactory, artificial, and certainly not what the writer of Genesis intended, end quote. That's not said by someone who's defending the book of Genesis, but rather the theory of evolution and trying to remove the possibility of the very kinds of things that some who identify themselves as evangelicals are trying to claim. An old earth understanding is very difficult to reconcile with an historical Adam as presented not only in terms of Genesis, but in terms of Romans. It requires an arbitrary claim that, that God created Adam as a special act of his creation, and it entangles a good many difficulties in terms of both exegesis and a redemptive historical understanding of Scripture. That becomes clearer in view of the second great issue at stake here, which is the fall. We understand from Genesis 3 and from the entire narrative of Scripture and from texts like Romans 8 that what we know in the world today as catastrophe as natural disaster, earthquake, destruction by volcanic eruption, pain, death, violence, predation, that these are results of the fall. We end up with enormous problems if we try to interpret an historical fall and understand an historical fall in an old earth rendering. This is most clear when it comes to Adam's sin. 
Was it true that as Paul argues, when sin came, death came? Well, just keep in mind that if the earth is indeed old, and we infer that it is old because of the scientific data, the scientific data is also there to claim that long before the emergence of Adam, if indeed there is the recognition of an historical Adam, and certainly long before there was the possibility of Adam's sin, there were all the effects of sin that are biblically attributed to the fall and not to anything before the fall. Oh, 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 oh this is so good. Right on. Amen. Oh. And we're not only talking about death, we're talking about death by the millions and billions. Some who hold to an old earth in dealing with this question suggest that what Paul is actually talking about, what the Scripture claims, is that when sin came, spiritual death came. But I would suggest to you that that is a very difficult claim to reconcile over against the totality of Scripture. And the whole idea that before there could be humanity, and certainly before there could be Homo sapiens, and before there could be Adam, and before there could be sin, there would be all the effects of sin written backwards. Let me just point out in the first place that no Christian reading the Scripture alone would ever come to such a conclusion. Ever. And once you try to come to that conclusion... It's very difficult, actually, to reconcile with the Scriptures, with the grand narrative of the Gospel. What sense does it make to point to the kingdom and the consummation as when the lamb and the lion shall be together and lay together, if indeed there was predation before the fall. If the animosity between the lion and the lamb is simply a part of a very old story, of a very old earth that we picked up as some kind of symbolic illustration, the writers of Scripture simply borrowing it in order to point towards the reality of a new creation. Well, how are we to understand the Scripture at all? There's eschatological impact as well. And there is tremendous theological strain when it comes to trying to sever the doctrine of redemption from a straightforward understanding of the scriptural account of creation. We are reminded of how closely these are together. We are reminded that John Calvin teaches us that the knowledge of God is the knowledge of God as creator and as redeemer. The imperative that's presented upon us is not new. And much of the language that is used to confront Christians today on this question goes back all the way to Galileo. Galileo spoke of the two books as he defended himself. He spoke of the book of Scripture and the book of nature, suggesting that the believer ought to be accountable to both books. And, and that is a very attractive argument. It's an attractive argument because we come to understand that the Scripture itself tells us that there is a natural revelation, a general revelation. 
In Romans chapter 1, Paul goes so far as to tell us not only that God has revealed himself in nature, but that in nature even his invisible attributes should be clearly seen. There is a book of nature. We do learn much from it. We learn a lot of common sense, observational truth from looking at the book of nature. We are not only licensed, but as we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as we are those who by God's grace have come to know him as creator, we are given the intellectual responsibility to come to know this earth and this cosmos and all that is within it, what we might call the book of nature, because we come to understand that God has revealed nature to be intelligible. But clearly there is a problem. And again, we go back to the fall. Because Paul makes clear that even though God has revealed himself in nature so that there is no one who is, without, who is with excuse, given the cloudiness of our vision and the corruption of our sight, we can no longer see what is clearly there. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The human sinfulness refuses to see what is plainly evident. Calvin puts it this way in book one. He says, this knowledge is either smothered or corrupted partly by ignorance, partly by malice. The universe is telling a story, and Christians have affirmed that the universe is telling a story. Herbert Butterfield, the great historian of science, points out that Christianity was the seedbed of the rise of modern science because Christians were confident that God had created the world to be known in an intelligible manner. But modern science, part of the modern project, as driven by forces such as Darwin and his heirs, is seeking to present to the Western mind, and indeed to a, a global mind, an intentional challenge to the Christian account of the meaning of things, an intentional alternative to the Christian worldview and to the Christian gospel. Evolution is central to the great secular mythology. Thus, it is why it is cherished so much by persons such as Richard Dawkins, who again said that it is Darwinism that allows persons to be intellectually fulfilled atheists. Now, this is not to argue that all who hold to an old earth hold to evolution in any form, nor to theistic evolution, which had I time, I would suggest is the consummate oxymoron. But rather, I would suggest that it is, that is, that an old age theory of the earth comes with theological and exegetical complications that I believe are, in the end, insurmountable. It is not fair to say that an old earth position cannot hold to an historical atom. It is to say that it cannot hold to an historical atom without arbitrary intellectual moves and very costly theological entanglements. It is to say that this position seems to be in an insoluble collision with the redemptive historical narrative of the gospel. The cost of the Christian church in terms of ignoring this question or abandoning this discussion is just too high. 
the, the, the cost of confronting this question is also costly. It, it can be very expensive because it can create intensity and conflict and controversy, but I would suggest that the avoidance of this will be at the cost of our own credibility. The two books, we need to recognize that disaster ensues when the book of nature or general revelation is used in some way to trump scripture and special revelation. And that is the very origin of this discussion. We would not be having this discussion today. This would not be one of those tough questions Christians ask if these questions were not being posed to us by those who assume that general revelation, that indeed the book of nature is presenting to us something in terms of compelling evidence, compelling evidence that is so forceful and credible that we're going to have to reconstruct and re-envision our understanding of the biblical text. I want you to think more deeply about this. The BioLogos website has just even in recent days focused its attention on the direct rejection of biblical inerrancy, understanding that any rendering of the Bible as inerrant makes the acceptance of theistic evolution impossible, certainly implausible. Kitten Sparks, writing at that website, suggests that intellectually, evangelicalism has painted itself into a corner. That we have put ourselves into an intellectual cul-de-sac with our understanding of biblical inerrancy. He suggests that the Bible indeed should be recognized as containing historical, theological, and moral error. Peter Enns, one of the most frequent contributors to the site, suggests that we have to come to the understanding that when it comes to many of the scientific claims, historical claims, the writers of scriptures were plainly wrong. Our only means of intellectual rescue, brothers and sisters, is the speaking God who speaks to us in scripture, in special revelation. And it is the Scripture, the inerrant and fallible Word of God, that trumps renderings of general revelation. And it must be so. Otherwise, we will face the destruction of the entire gospel in intellectual terms. When general revelation is used to trump special revelation, disaster ensues. And not just on this score. It's not just on the question of the age of the earth. What about other questions? The assured results of modern science? There's so much that is, that is packed in that mental category, that intellectual claim. Just, just to remember, first of all, that science has changed and has gone through many transformations. The assured results of modern science today may very well not be the assured results of modern science tomorrow, and I can promise you are not the assured results of science yesterday. In the New York Times, just in recent days, there has been a major article about one particular fossil which is claimed to be a hominid, and just about a year ago, that same paper presented it as irrefutable proof of a certain trajectory of human evolution, now you have scientists coming back saying, we don't even believe that it's a hominid fossil.
The assured results of modern science? What are the assured results of modern science say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? What do the assured results of modern science in terms of the methodological naturalism that is absolutely essential to modern science, what does it say about the virgin conception of Jesus Christ? The assured results of modern science? Science is now claiming to tell us about sexual orientation in terms of a physicalist explanation. Are, is, is the Christian church going to make its understanding of human sexuality and, and sexual morality accountable to the assured results of modern science? Are we going to submit our cosmology? Are we going to take the redemptive historical understanding of Scripture and, and submit this to interrogation by the assured results of, of modern science? Let me suggest to you the end of that process is absolutely... Of scripture includes the claim that scripture is norma, normans, nor, non normata. The norm of norms that cannot be normed. Any surrender of that on any question leads to disaster. In conclusion, there is a head on collision here. There are those who claim there is no head-on collision. Francis Ayala, who just won the Templeton Award, says that science and religion cannot be in conflict because they're answering two different questions. The science is answering the how. And religion is answering the who and the why. That is intellectually facile. The scripture is claiming far more than who and why, and any honest reading of the modern scientific consensus knows that it too is speaking of the who and very clearly speaking to the why. Stephen Jay Gould, the late paleontologist at Harvard University, spoke of what he called non-overlapping magisteria. He said, science and religion are non-overlapping magisteria. Each has its own magisterial authority and its own sphere of knowledge, and they never overlap. Well, the problem is they overlap all the time. They even overlap in Stephen Jay Gould's own writings. We cannot separate the who and the why and the what as if those are intellectually separable questions. In his new book, Why Evolution is True, Jerry Coyne cites Michael Shermer at the very beginning, who says this, Darwin matters because evolution matters. Evolution matters because science matters. Science matters because it is the preeminent story of our age, an epic saga about who we are, where we came from, and where we are going. It sounds to me like he's talking about the why, not just the when and the what. I want to suggest to you that when it comes to the confrontation between evolutionary theory and the Christian gospel, we have a head-on collision. In the confrontation between secular science and the scripture, we have a head-on collision. I want to suggest to you that it is our responsibility to give an answer when we are asked the question, why does the universe look so old? In the limitations of time, it is impossible that we walk through every alternative and answer every sub-question. But I want to suggest to you that the most natural understanding from the Scripture of how to answer that question comes to this. The universe looks old because the Creator made it whole. When He made Adam, Adam was not a fetus. Adam was a man. He had the appearance of a man. By our understanding, that would have required time. 
for Adam to get old, but not by the sovereign creative power of God. He put Adam in the garden. The garden was not merely seeds. It was a fertile, fecund, mature garden. The Genesis account clearly claims that God creates and makes things whole. Secondly, and very quickly, if I'm asked, why does the universe look so old? I have to say it looks old because it bears testimony of the effects of sin and testimony of the judgment of God. It bears the effects of the catastrophe of the flood and catastrophes innumerable thereafter. I would suggest to you that the scripture looks old because, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, it is groaning. And in its groaning, it does look old. It gives us empirical evidence of the reality of sin. And even as this cosmos is the theater of God's glory, it is the theater of God's glory for the, the drama of redemption that takes place here on this planet in telling the story of the redemptive love of God. Is this compatible with the claim that the universe is 4.5 billion years old in terms of Earth, 13.5 billion years old in terms of the larger universe? Even though that may not be the first and central question, it is an inescapable question, and I would suggest to you that in our effort to be most faithful to the scriptures and most accountable to the grand narrative of the gospel and understanding of creation in terms of 24-hour calendar days and a young earth entails far fewer complications, far fewer theological problems, and actually is the most straightforward An uncomplicated reading of the text as we come to understand God telling us how the universe came to be and what it means and why it matters. At the end of the day, if I'm asked the question, why does the universe look so old? I'm simply left with the reality that the universe is telling the story of the glory of God. Why does it look so old? Well, that in terms of any more elaborate answer, is known only to the ancient of days. And that is where we are left. All right. Oh, man. I apologize for some of the glitchiness at the end of the audio. The audio that I had was, it kind of ends abruptly and had that little bit of thing going on at the uh, in the middle of it. But overall, fantastic lecture. And I am so excited that God has raised up men to boldly proclaim his word and to be uncompromising and and to basically do it in a way that is thoughtful and not knee-jerk, but is well thought out, well-reasoned, well-argued, and it's wonderful. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> What do you think? <sighs> Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. 
When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. may not seem like a lot to you, but it's a lot to us because um, the the more people that join our crew, especially as we get closer and closer to the 1,000 uh, crew member mark, uh, th- th- that helps us to basically level out the giving in such a way that we're able to meet our budgeted expenses every single month, which is really important to do. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right. I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.